0: And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ.
1: Well, good evening. Let's um, pray as we begin. Let's pray. Oh, heavenly Father, we thank you for your precious and unperishing Word. We thank you that through it you uh, bring us uh, to know the Lord Jesus. You grow us in our faith. Um, we thank you that we find the treasures of the gospel in your Word. And we pray that as this evening we dig into it together, um, we pray that you would see us. Uh, you would uh, show us uh, more of what you are like. Would show us more of the Lord Jesus, and you would show us more of what it means to live for Him, and for Jesus' glory. We pray, Amen. And this is our last time, as um, Andrew mentioned, our last session in One Peter together. And so, I thought I'd start with a little bit of a recap of some of the kind of big themes from the book as a whole, um, which some of which we'll see picked up in our in this final chapter. So Peter um, says that Christians have been born again into a new life, Uh, but it's a slightly surprising new life. It is a life in which uh, Christians um, take on the kind of shape of Jesus' life, that is suffering now and glory later, and that is the shape of Jesus' life, that is the shape of the followers of Jesus' life too, suffering now, glory later. And you might think if the Christian life is all about, mostly about, you know, suffering now and looking forward to glory, you might think that a Christian's main aims should be all about trying to sort of minimize your suffering now um, and uh, perhaps standing up to those who are causing the suffering. Actually, in the letter, Peter says sort of almost exactly the opposite of that. The Christian embraces the suffering that comes their way, indeed, they rejoice. In uh, suffering, particularly suffering that is called specifically for, uh, by following Jesus, uh, because that is what Jesus went through. And therefore, it's a good sign that they're following in their Lord's footsteps. And there might be a place for standing up to those who cause suffering, of course, especially when it's the suffering of others. But the emphasis in this letter is on learning to submit in various different contexts to the people that God has put in authority over us. Um, Everyone is to submit to the secular rulers. Servants are to submit to their masters. Uh, Most controversially in our culture, I guess, wives are to submit to their husbands. And we're to submit like this, even to unjust authorities, says Peter, because that is what Jesus did, and our lives are to be shaped by his life. Peter says, I think at least seven times in this letter, you can look them up if you agree, um, that Christians are to learn to be holy Or sanctified. I don't know what you think of when you hear the word holy, sanctified. Perhaps you think of those paintings of Christians with halos, you know, looking serene, um, frankly smug normally. Um, But but suffering and submission is actually what Peter has in mind when he talks about uh, holiness. As part of my uh, training for ministry, the Church of England seemed to love sending me to retreat centers and you get the impression in these retreat centers that you know the, the, the path to holiness is all about cutting yourself off from the busyness and the messiness of the world and just sort of being alone with God and my thoughts or whatever. Which Actually, I can totally see the attraction of that. Uh, there may be a place for retreat in order to advance. But Peter's basic picture of the Christian life, it doesn't look much like a, a monk. It looks like sanctification um, that is won by suffering and submission in the midst of the messiness and busyness of this life. And if we're becoming like Jesus in our lives here and now, we are being sanctified, then one day we will be glorified like Jesus at his return. And that is what Peter means by salvation. Um, That salvation that we will receive on the final day when Jesus returns and is sort of revealed to the whole world. On that day, Christians will be saved And Peter says the path to that final salvation is through this suffering and submission. Ultimately, of course, it is Jesus's unique suffering and submission that makes it possible for us to be sanctified and finally saved. It is through the cross that Jesus dealt with our sin that otherwise leaves us unable to be sanctified and saved. Um, Jesus is our substitute He submits to sin-bearing death and he suffers God's wrath in our place so that we don't need to. Jesus is our substitute. But then he is our example as well. And we are to follow in his footsteps of suffering and submission. So for the Christians, sanctification and salvation come through suffering and submission. First, Jesus' suffering and submission on our behalf And then following in his footsteps our own suffering and submission. Now, that is my sort of overview of the letter as a whole. There's lots more in the letter than that. um, But that is a a summary of some of Peter's big themes in the letter. And we're going to see some of them picked up in this final chapter. It's worth saying we're going to see lots of commands in this final chapter. um, But don't get the impression that being a Christian is all about obeying commands. And for those here still on the outside of Christian things looking in, that is a very common misunderstanding of the Christian faith. Um, Remember that in the previous four chapters, Peter has told us an enormous amount about what Jesus has done for us. Uh, These commands come towards the end of the letter, and they flow out of that love. They flow out as a a sort of response to what Jesus has done for us. In verse 10 of chapter 5, we see God described as the God of all grace. He's a generous God. who gives us the blessings of the Christian life for free. Uh, it's nothing to do with us earning them. Obeying these commands is the way to please the God who has done that for us. Well, enough waggling on the tea, as a friend of mine used to say. Let's get into the passage um, in front of us. Two halves to the passage. First, what kind of leaders do our churches need um, if we are going to live the Christian life that Peter's been outlining? And then second, what kind of congregations will that leadership produce? So first, a command for church leaders. I'm um, Just one big command, but filled out with three contrasts. So here's the command. Uh, imitate Jesus in shepherding God's flock. So look at verse one with me. Chapter five, 1 Peter chapter five, verse one. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that's going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God, that is among you, exercising oversight. Skip to verse 4. When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Well, the term elder here um, is the word uh, presbyteros. We get the word presbyter and um, presbyterian, even priest, actually, all come from that word. It can just mean older person. Um, it can be a sort of more official church office, and Titus is instructed to appoint elders as those. Um, Not necessarily the sort of thing that just happens to you by having birthdays. Here I think it's kind of nearer the office end of the spectrum. But we need to be careful not to draw our boundaries around the office of elder more tightly than um, the Bible does. Probably lots of us here will have some kind of responsibility for the growth of other Christians. Whether you're on the full-time staff, or you're a home group leader, or you're involved in the youth and children's work. um, Even if you're not on a formal rota somewhere... Uh, any Christian who wants to use God's word to encourage other Christians to keep on following Jesus is to some extent involved in this kind of Christian leadership. So we have a leaders morning um, back in January. The invitation to the leaders morning is issued pretty broadly because we have a pretty broad understanding of what kind of uh, uh, roles counters leadership in this church. It's a command for church leaders, but we should take that, um, uh, that term pretty broadly. The command is, church leaders are to imitate Jesus in shepherding God's flock. Jesus had said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Um, He is here the chief shepherd in verse 4. Ultimately, verse 2, God's flock. But God appoints under-shepherds to take care of the flock on Jesus' behalf. And they're to do so following Jesus' example. I think the image of the shepherd is probably the most widespread image of church leadership that we get in the New Testament. Um, Leaders are to feed the flock with God's word, the Bible, to protect them from danger, also by using um, God's word. Peter, of course, is remembering a conversation he had with the resurrected Lord Jesus over breakfast, Um, recorded in John 21. Um, He had denied knowing Jesus three times. Did you know that? I I don't even know him, it said. You would think that Peter might have written himself off as any kind of church leader. But after Jesus' resurrection, Jesus restores Peter to leadership. He says to him three times, feed my sheep. And surely Peter, who writes this letter, has that moment in his life in mind as he writes about um, a shepherd leadership of God's flock, For about the fourth or fifth time in this letter, Peter reminds his readers, verse one, of the sufferings of Christ and the glory that is to follow. If that is the pattern of every Christian's life, it is particularly the pattern of Christian leadership. In the Church of England, when a new bishop is appointed, as I understand will shortly happen in Rochester, our diocese, um, he or she is enthroned. What an absurd word to use about church leadership. Um, Jesus' coronation was the cross. Perhaps all church leaders should take up their offices with some kind of ceremony where everyone gets to spit at them or something like that. Um, No doubt some would find that a way of making that look impressive as well, but it would be better, wouldn't it? I think I'm the next person taking up an appointment in the church around here, so perhaps um, we'll put that off for a little while. For church leaders, just as for all Christians, um, we are to follow Jesus, suffering now, But, verse 4, when the chief shepherd appears, then you will receive the unfading crown of glory. And three quick things that Peter tells us about the way this command to shepherd God's flock is to be carried out. First, not under compulsion, but willingly. So, verse 2, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. willingness to serve is a necessary condition for Christian leadership. That's not a sufficient condition. Again, from Titus, for example, you don't appoint yourself to to Christian leadership. We are appointed by older, wiser Christians. But willingness is a necessary condition. And it is possible to end up serving in some role just because we feel that if we don't do it, no one else will. Um, It's easy to serve out of a sense of guilt, um, to serve grudgingly. perhaps a bit of a whinge whenever we get the chance to do it a bit subtly. I see it on myself. I doubt I'm the only one. I checked yesterday with Tom that I'm allowed to say this. I think this passage forced us to say if you are currently serving in some role at St. John's under compulsion, unwillingly, maybe out of guilt rather than gratitude, um, stop. Stop serving in that role. At the end, Tom can stand at the back to receive all our letters of resignation and form an orderly cue. Um, But it would be better not to serve than to disobey the Bible by serving under compulsion. And there might be some who, you know, that is genuinely the right thing to do right now. But others of us need reminding of the cross. We should carry on serving, but try and fix our motives. Um, Jesus has served us in his death on the cross, and as we think of that, um, it should change our hearts. It should turn us into willing servants um, for some willing uh, shepherds. Second, church leaders are to serve, verse two again, uh, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. They may not have been um, full-time, but it does seem that these church leaders uh, were being paid for their work. The danger was that money would become their driving motive, Um, My friend was a a curate in a fairly sleepy village church um, that kind of viewed clergy as somewhere between a social worker and a good luck charm for the village. do not really expect to do very much, except kind of be around, maybe visit some of the old people. Just good to know they're on hand. We just like having clergy in the village. He said, very easy in that kind of role to carve out quite a comfortable sort of lifestyle. Not super well-paid, never going to live in a mansion, but good enough, and and a certain kind of patronising respect from the community Many of us, of course, don't really have that option. But someone has put it like this. In all of us, there is the danger of that calculating spirit that's always working out what's in it for me. Perhaps you think if I join the children's work team, I'll get to hang out with my friends. Or I won't have to sit through the morning service. That might still be the right thing to do. But again, check your motives. Jesus laid aside all his self-interest in serving us. We are to do the same. Third, church leaders are to be, verse 3, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Church leaders have already been told in verse 2 to exercise oversight. So it's not a, a sort of complete flattening of all hierarchy and, and leadership. Um, churches are not to be operated on a sort of communist basis. Or anarchist basis, as far as I can see. In fact, I can't see. there are any suggestion there to be operate on democratic principles either. There's no voting in the New Testament, as far as I can see. Um, but the command to church leaders here is not to be domineering. And it is a very ugly thing when church leaders are domineering. Um, Jesus is our model. No lack of authority in Jesus. He commands fishermen, they do it. But he uses his authority, not for a power trip, um, but to get himself crucified. Um, that is where his authority takes him. He does it for our sake, not for his own. That is the kind of leader that I want to follow. It's the kind of leader that we must aspire to become. That is the kind of leadership our churches need if they are to live the Christian lives that Peter has in mind. When we think about it, perhaps that's obvious. And um, We're all to live... Um, lives that imitate Jesus. Leaders are in particular to imitate Jesus in shepherding God's flock, to do so not under compulsion but willingly, not for shameful gain but eagerly, not domineering but by being examples. And what kind of congregations will that produce? Well, here's four commands for church members and for, for everyone. Uh, with each command, a reason to obey it. Uh, first of all, be humble because God will exalt you. Be humble, because God will exalt you. Verse five, um, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Our culture has a kind of ambivalent attitude to humility, I sense. On the one hand, we love nothing more than when a sportsman makes a huge pre-match claim about destroying the opposition and is then humiliated on the field. And on the other hand, we are constantly told to believe in ourselves and not to let anyone put us down, and so on. Frank Lloyd Wright, the American architect and writer, said early in life I had to choose between honest arrogance and hypocritical humility. I chose the former, and I've seen no reason to change. It's nonsense, isn't it? Uh, Jesus' life and death show us that each of us has to choose between honest humility and hypocritical arrogance. When you measure yourself next to Jesus, there is no place for honest arrogance anymore. God wants to humble us, and he wants to humble us, not so that he can point and laugh, as uh, we love to do with the humiliated sportsman. Um, he wants to humble us so that at the proper time he can lift us up. The book of Revelation promise us, promises us that one day God himself will wipe away our tears. Um, becoming humble may bring us often to the point of tears. But without tears, we cannot know the honor of God's gentle restoration. Be humble. Because God will exalt you. Second, cast your anxieties on God because he cares for you. Verse seven, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. I think this follows on from the command to be humble because anxiety has a terrible way of stopping us from caring about other people. We worry if I don't look out for my interests, who is going to? Peter's answer is if you don't look out for your interests, God is going to, so don't be anxious. My original heading here was going to be stop worrying. Now that's not what it says. And in fact, telling people to stop worrying isn't necessarily all that helpful because, you know, how are you supposed to? Now I'm worried about being unable to stop worrying. I've got all sorts of things to worry about. Peter doesn't say here just stop worrying, uh, cast your anxieties away into outer space or something. He specifically says, cast your anxieties on him, on God, because he cares for you. We don't just take our anxieties off ourselves and hope they'll go away. And we take them off ourselves and give them to the Lord. Peter is telling us to take our, our focus off the anxiety ourse- itself and focus on the God who cares for us and who cares for other people. We can worry a bit less about our aging parents, for example, when we remember that God loves them more than we do. We can worry a bit less about our exam results when we remember that God has better plans for our future education and employment than we would ever have come up with um, for ourselves. Cast your anxieties on God because he cares for you. Third command, be watchful because the devil is out to get you. Verse 8 Be sober minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. What does it mean to be spiritually sober minded and watchful? Um, someone has said this Perhaps there is a shock awaiting one of us this week. Uh, maybe a good shock, it may be a bad one we're going to have a little bump in the car or something like that. At that moment, will our reaction be any different from the non-Christian? Will we take God into account? Will we view it from his perspective? Or are we asleep spiritually? You are spiritually asleep if something happens to you this week and you act just as if you were a non-Christian. You need to be watchful, to be ready, to be on high alert, so that as life throws all its complicated situations at us, we are able to react to them in a distinctively Christian way, a way that takes into account God and his care for us, for example. And the devil is real. His big aim in life is to get us to give up on Jesus. And his first step in getting us there may be to make us act like a non-Christian in some pressured situation. The devil is real. I mean, he is powerful, but the situation is not hopeless. Last command, resist the devil because God will restore you. Look at verse nine. Resist him, that's the devil, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you've suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore confirm, strengthen, and establish ye. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. I take it that the sufferings that Peter is talking about here are the same as the sufferings he's been talking about in the rest of the letter. The suffering that comes from following Jesus. The devil wants us to avoid that suffering by not sticking up for Jesus when it's tough. Peter wants us to resist the devil by standing firm in our faith. Even when that brings suffering, that is what it means to resist the devil, to keep going as a Christian, even when that brings suffering. And the first truth that we need to remember when we are tempted to give in to the devil's easier route through life is that we're not alone. Christians are experiencing the same things all over the world. The second truth that we need to remember is that it won't last Perhaps Peter's saying that even in this life, periods of persecution are often followed by periods of peace. I think probably he's talking about the next life. And what an amazing promise that the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. That must help us uh, to resist the devil and to go God's way even when it hurts. As we close, let me read the final um, few verses of this letter. Verse 12, by Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I've written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who's likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Peter's message has been that sanctification now and salvation on the last day come through suffering for being a Christian and submission to authorities. Um, that is not a message designed for popular support. No politician has ever campaigned on those slogans. Suffering now, glory later. Hundreds of far more popular messages out there, including coming from plenty of people who would call themselves Christians. Christians. Um, People will say, health now, wealth now, happiness now. But Peter insists, verse 12, this is the true grace of God. This is the real message. Stand firm in it. It is ultimately better than those other messages. More realistic to anyone who stops to think about their experiences. Closer to Jesus' own experience. More glorifying to God and a message with a better ending. Let me finish by reading verses 10 and 11. And After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen.